0: Hello, and welcome to Value Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and today I'm joined by Julia Lessing to discuss ways in which data scientists can improve the effectiveness of their workplace conversations. Julia is the Principal Actuary and Director of Guardian Actuarial, which specializes in helping clients use data to solve complex people-oriented problems and runs the Guardian Actuarial Leadership Program and the Easier Conversations course. She is also the host of the We Are Actuaries podcast. Julia, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Genevieve. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be having this conversation
0: with you today. It's great to have you. I remember the first time I ever encountered you, Julia. I think it was at an actuarial conference a number of years ago. Possibly prior to you starting Guardian Actuarial, you had by far the most interesting talk and the most interesting background of anyone at the conference. Oh, Genevieve, I'm so flattered. Thank you for your kind (laughs) words. (laughs) I think the talk was about you applying actuarial techniques to help protect children. Does Mm. that sound right? Yes, I remember that very well. Even though the content of that speech was fascinating, what actually stuck with me was the fact that you weren't just helping people in your professional work. You were also living the life of helping people. Mm. So I remember you were talking about how you'd trained and worked as a lifeline counsellor.
1: Yes, yes, yes. I did train as a lifeline counsellor and um, it's interesting. I haven't thought about that presentation that you've just referred to for quite some time. Uh, It was probably the first time I'd ever gotten up on the stage at an actuaries conference and presented. And I remember being absolutely terrified is probably the best way to describe it. The idea of getting up and speaking in front of people, public speaking is something that has just always filled me with dread. And I think with practice, I've gotten better at feeling okay about doing it to the point where it's, you know, the dread's not paralyzing. Um, but I remember that presentation really well. And I think the motivation around that was just wanting to be able to share some of the interesting work that we were doing and to be able to share that with others. Um, so I'm really glad that that was memorable for you and that it came across well. I'd just like
0: to talk a bit more about that lifeline work that you did before mm. we go on. Sure. Sure. I'm not sure if they have Lifeline in countries outside of Australia. Mm. For anyone who's unfamiliar with Lifeline, could you describe what Lifeline does? So
1: Lifeline here in Australia is a it's a free service that anyone can call in their time of crisis. So it's really a crisis line. Uh, it's manned by trained or personed by trained telephone counselors who are prepared to help the callers with whatever crisis that they're facing and those those crises could range from um, a suicidal crisis it could be a mental health crisis it could be a domestic violence crisis it could be grief and bereavement it could be anything else that someone's finding themselves in their time of in a time of need where they need to talk to somebody. And maybe they don't have someone that they trust that they can talk to, or maybe there's just no one available for them to talk to. And so Lifeline provides that service um, via free telephone counselling and
0: trained volunteer counsellors operate that hotline. I've never been in circumstances where I've needed to use a service such as Lifeline, but I can see that it must be a great help to people who do need it. And I'm very grateful that people like you exist. Thanks, Genevieve.
1: It's certainly been one of the more challenging volunteering type roles uh, that I've been involved in. but it's also one of the ones that I probably maybe unexpectedly have gotten the most out of myself. Mm. I think an appreciation for what some of some people do go through. Um, I'm lucky enough that like you, I haven't needed to make a call to Lifeline myself. And I'm also really fortunate to have a good support group of people and family and friends around me when I do need that help. But not everybody has that. And even when people do have that, sometimes those people aren't available or, you know, in the time of grief, sometimes after someone loses a loved one, for example, people around them might get tired of hearing their grief or not know how to help their grief. And so sometimes you might get a caller who just wants to talk and reflect and and share that those feelings when maybe the people who have been supporting them around them are perhaps
0: tired of those conversations or not as supportive as they maybe were at the start. Some of those conversations that you had through that work with Lifeline must have been some of the most challenging conversations that anyone could have in pretty much any workplace.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely, Genevieve. And I think That's one of the scariest things of answering a Lifeline call because when the Lifeline phone rings, you don't know who's calling and you don't know what situation they're in. You don't know what kind of help they're going to need. Unfortunately, sometimes you also get prank callers. So whilst you're wanting to to meet with the callers and, and really take them as a genuine call and support them, sometimes you do also get prank callers who have their own challenges as well and you need to treat them with respect but contain them carefully so yes it's certainly I can't think of a more challenging conversation that I've than I've had or had to respond to than some of the calls that
0: we answered at Lifeline I can imagine that what you learned through doing those conversations must have also taught you a lot of valuable lessons that you could take back to your job and to your life outside of Lifeline yes absolutely and in fact you know, if you'd said to
1: me now that this is what I'd be doing with my work—that I'd be teaching communication and teaching leadership—I um, wouldn't have believed you. Because when I first started my career, I was—I um, was a numbers person. I was good at maths. I was—I loved science. I found essays really challenging. I was the quiet girl at school, you know, you wouldn't find me on the debate team, you wouldn't find me the centre of attention at a party, those sorts of skills, you know, I preferred the the work to myself, the the quiet, concrete, black and white sort of work, individual work, I suppose. But as life went on, and I became a mother, and I started working, I realised that having communication skills were would basically be the make or break of my career and life success and that it wasn't going to be enough to just have those technical skills. And the prompt that made me want to learn how to answer calls for Lifeline was that a friend at the time was going through a very dark period in her life and she'd often... Just turn up at my doorstep and, and needed help. And I just didn't know what to say to her. I just didn't have the words. I was so worried about saying the wrong thing and making it worse. And I was so worried about not saying anything and then not being able to help her. And I just, I felt like I just didn't know what to do. And so then I went and did the training for Lifeline. And the penny dropped for me around communication because up until then I'd thought that communication, you know, people were either numbers people or they were communication people. You know, we we're either good at maths or good at English. And I thought that I was just the former and and that, you know, I was just never going to be a good communicator or, you know, one of those, one of those people. But then I realized as I went through the lifeline training, which was in terms of all the courses I've ever taken, the lifeline training, getting ready to be on the phones, was without a doubt, the most comprehensive, practical, useful, well-designed, well-thought-out course I've ever taken in terms of building skills. But as I started to go through that process, the penny dropped for me and I realised that communication and learning how to communicate is actually not that different from learning how to build a model or undertake some data analysis It's actually, there's actually a bunch of micro skills. There's a formula that you can use to combine those micro skills and algorithm, if you like, for conversations. And they're they're skills that you can just learn and practice and get better at. That it's not just some sort of magic art that you either can communicate or you can't, or you can have a good conversation or you can't. There's actually a whole lot of micro skills and a formula that you can use to combine them to have a better conversation. And that felt like a real light bulb moment for me when I realized that I could actually use my logical analytical brain to learn how to do something that didn't involve numbers.
0: The data nerd in me is now getting really excited when you started (laughs) using words like algorithms. (laughs) I think that's a good segue into today's topic. Data scientists are constantly being told about the importance of effective communication for their career success. If you look at data science job ads, what that seems to translate to is employers want to hire data scientists who can effectively communicate the results of their work. Mm -hmm. And fair enough, if you can't communicate what you've done, you might as well have not done it. Mm, So true. And there are a lot of books and workshops out there on storytelling with data as a result. Mm -hmm. I've got a couple of them on my own bookshelf. (laughs) But what I find really interesting about the work you're doing is that's not the angle you've chosen to take when it comes to your own communications course. You haven't developed a data storytelling course or a results presentation course. Your course is called Easier Conversations. I'm guessing that that means that it's focused on conversational communication. Yes. Why did you choose to focus on conversational communication rather than data storytelling or presentation skills?
1: Good question. I I think they're all equally important. And I think there's already some really excellent material out there. You've already referred to some books. I've got some books too. I particularly like Cole Nasboma Naflik's book, Storytelling with Data. And, you know, because she was the head of people analytics at Google and, and she talks about how... Exploratory data is like opening oysters, and we, we might open 100 oysters, but we might only find two pearls. And so, mm-hmm. when we're presenting the results of our work, it's so tempting to want to show everyone all the oysters that we've opened yes. um, and not just share the pearls at the end. And I love that analogy because. I know I myself fall into that trap too. You know, I, I, I open oysters and I want to show someone the work I've done opening that oyster. I want to show that graph I've produced or that summary I've developed. Or, you know, I want to take people on the journey around how I've done my data analysis. When actually at the end of the day, people don't want to go on that journey. Not everyone wants to go on that journey. They just need to know what does that mean? What, what are the pearls? They just want to see the pearls. So I I think there's already some really great material available around that. And certainly people who are much better at um, doing those things than I am. I wanted to develop easier conversations really out of my Lifeline experience. And, you know, that was 10 years ago that I was on the Lifeline phones, but it was such a pivotal moment for me, as I mentioned before, just realizing that conversations are actually a set of micro skills that you can mix and match and combine um, to have easier conversations in any setting. And you can apply that in so many different scenarios. You can apply that when you're delegating work. You can apply that when someone's delegating work to you. You can apply that when you're having a difficult conversation. And I hate that term, difficult conversations, because lots of conversations feel difficult. But who wants to have a difficult conversation? Why can't we all have easier conversations? And I think we can if we know what those raw ingredients are, if we know what the parameters are and we know some of the things that we can combine to have a better conversation. So I just really wanted to share some of my learnings and then how I'd applied that as well to not just go through scenarios and say oh if you have this kind of conversation here's how you need to handle it but just to give people the the toolbox and the technical skills that they can draw on and use and apply in the same way that we do with our data science in terms of working out which which tool do we need which you know, which piece of code might solve this problem or can we borrow something from here? We, we've got that. We get that from our experience and we share that with others. But I think we can do the same with communication and with, in particular with verbal communication.
0: So you're looking at not just peer-to-peer communication but also manager to direct mm-hmm. report or direct report to manager?
1: Absolutely. And, and in the Guardian Actuary Leadership Program where I support actuaries who transition from being individual contributors to managers, that's sometimes one of the challenging components of that transition. And so I hear all the time, I don't know how to delegate work because they're not doing what I ask them to do, or how do I delegate without micromanaging? And I think when you've got, and there's a whole lot of art behind that and a whole lot of science behind that as well, but having the basic ingredients for a good conversation, for example, the use of silence, you know, we think about verbal communication as talking and it is but that's not all it is. Listening and being able to not talk are also really key components to effective verbal communication. So knowing how to use silence, when to use silence in those, whether it's a peer-to-peer conversation or whether it's a conversation with a direct report or even with a superior or a senior manager or a client, silence is a really powerful tool. So there are lots of little tools like that, that once you know what they are, and often we use them without thinking about it very much. But the way my brain works is that it's helpful to have names for these things and to know when and how to apply those things. And then I can combine those um, to have better conversations and draw on those tools in the same way I draw on
0: different analytical tools to solve a, a data problem. When you're teaching your conversations course, How do you bundle the information? Do you bundle it by technique or do you bundle it by type of conversation?
1: I do it in the same way that we learnt on the Lifeline phones. I start with the micro skills. So silence, for example, that's a skill by itself. So we talk about what is silence? What does it look like? When do you use it? How do you use it? And then we would have a couple of scenarios where we see how that's used and then we'd practice using that. So it's sort of learn the theory watch how it's used, and then practice, and then reflect on how that went.
0: So it's sort of like how when you're learning data science, you would learn all your building blocks of data science, which are things like the different types of supervised learning models. And then you look at how can you put all those different building blocks together. And I'm guessing that you start building on technique after technique and dealing with more and more complex conversations as you work through the course. Yes. So I guess the difficult conversations that would probably come towards the end of the course. That's correct. That's correct. So in easier conversations,
1: I've distilled 10 micro skills or 10 building blocks, um, as you've said which are, you know, silence is one of them. How do you use silence? What does it look like? Silence is is an early foundational building block that I think is important in so many conversations. So the first couple of skills that we look at, they're the kinds of things that you'd use in everyday conversations, conversation with a friend, conversation at the shops, a social conversation, and then some of the more complex skills, we then build on those. So we'd learn a couple of skills, then we'd look at some simple sort of scenarios to test those. Then we'd look at some more intermediate type skills, like using open questions instead of closed questions. So I remember when I first started delegating tasks, I really didn't want to be a micromanager, and I didn't want to, and I also felt a little bit of a little bit of shame of, asking someone else to do the work that I thought I should be doing. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I felt that too when I started managing. Did you? Yeah. It's a funny feeling, isn't it? Because you think, gosh, I can do this and I can probably do it faster um, than the person I'm giving it to, but I'm asking them to do what felt like my work or not that long ago was my work. Um, And so as a consequence of those feelings, what I tended to do when I started delegating was I'd say, oh, here's what we need to do. Can you do that? And... The answer to can you do that when you're asking someone who's, you know, and I'm generalizing here, but most actuaries, data scientists I've worked with who are on the tools, they're very good at what they do. They are wanting to learn, wanting to please, wanting to progress. And so the common answer to that question, can you do this? It's usually yes. It's very rarely no. And the problem with that conversation, well, there's many problems with asking that question in that way, but one of them is you're not giving the person an opportunity to clarify what you meant, ask any questions about it. You're not giving any opportunity to have a, a dialogue about the task and to you know maybe learn something from the person you're assigning the task to that you hadn't thought of or a, a question that they had that you hadn't thought of. So asking an open question like, here's what we need to do, you know, is this something that you've looked at before? Or would you like me to take you through what we need to do here? Or, you know, could you tell me where you would start with this project? So, you know, some of those journalistic sort of, you know, who, why, what, where, when type questions, an open question that isn't going to only elicit a yes or no answer, because if you are looking for a yes or no answer, often the answer will be yes. And that's not always the correct answer. (laughs)
0: That's not always a helpful answer. I, I got tripped up on that early in my man- time as a manager. You do. What happened? I'd assign a person a task. So this was a junior staff member. It was the mm-hmm. most junior member of my team. And I'd explain the task to him. And I'd say, "And do you understand that? Uh. Yes. And then <laughs> he'd go away and do it. And what he ended up producing was not actually what I envisaged him producing. Uh-huh. And I realized later on that, do you understand that? It's a loaded question, isn't it? And it's also a subjective question because he probably did think that he understood it, but he's not a mind reader. So he couldn't understand that I had one picture of this work in my mind and he clearly had another picture of his work in his mind.
1: What a great example, Genevieve. And so, so after that, and reflecting on that, the question: Do you understand? And knowing that you've heard a yes, what other questions would you ask with more experience and having learned
0: from that? What, how how would you frame that question to get what you're looking for? Probably start having a conversation discussing how we could together deliver the outcome. Because mm. the other thing I was very mindful of was that I didn't want to manage micromanage my staff. I also didn't want to humiliate the staff member by saying, okay, I don't trust that you have understood this. Could you please repeat back to me what I've said? Because that would just be horrible for the poor person. Hmm. So I think it's a matter of framing it in such a way that it's not saying I don't trust you or that I think you're not capable of doing this work. I would probably say, do you want to explore ways in which we could do this work? So let's brainstorm some ideas and then by doing that, it would allow me to determine are we both on the same page? Yeah. And I think that's the most respectful way of having a conversation like that.
1: I love that, Genevieve. It it is absolutely a respectful way to have that conversation. It's also a a more productive way to have that conversation because... You're opening the dialogue so that you can have that discussion around what is it that you expect and what is it that the person you're assigning the task is thinking and how can you align those things and get the best out of what each of you are thinking so that the ultimate output is you get there as efficiently as you can because it's always a challenge in a business context but also you you get something that's going to meet your needs rather than getting something that completely is not what you need or not what you're expecting or it's missing a key component so yeah it's great great to be able to have those conversations and to to have those words to do to do that because sometimes when you're in the moment especially if you're under stress you're under pressure you're working you know there's lots of deadlines we tend to revert to our natural way of doing things and so Sometimes that's not an ideal or optimum way of communicating at work. So, practicing the way that we might say these things or having those lines up our sleeve and and practicing them and refining them and really making them our own as well. um, I think it makes it easier to draw on them in the moment when you need to.
0: I think another aspect of communication is understanding the psychology of the people who you're communicating with. Hmm. What do you mean by that? What's their agenda? I'm not trying to say this in any derogatory sense, but everyone's got something that they're trying to achieve. It might be someone just wants to keep their job. So if you say something that could make them scared for whether they're going to keep their job, they're going to have a particular reaction.
1: Absolutely. And as much as we like to think that we're especially as, as logical, rational, you know, analytical Mm. minds. Sometimes we, we like to think that we're very rational and logical in the way that we approach our work, but we're all human. And we've, whether we acknowledge them or not, we've got feelings that drive our behaviors
0: Mm. and,
1: and managers can say things that can trigger certain behaviors, whether we're aware of that or not, and whether they're aware of it or not. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Everyone has, um, objectives, and everyone has their own worldview and their own history that will affect how they come to work and how they engage and how they hold a conversation with you and how they work with you. So, yeah, there's definitely there's definitely that
0: context to to consider. I once attended this training, and they were saying that if you say something to someone, their reaction is one part how they're reacting to what you've said. But the majority of it is what they're currently thinking about. So their current situation, and that mm-hmm. might be, I'm cold, I'm stressed, I'm tired, something mm-hmm. like that. And majority of it is their past experiences. So it's what their initial reaction is mostly what you've triggered from their past so true and and that's not
1: just the case at work that can be the case at home as well. you know you say something to your partner and your partner reacts in a different way and you think, Why are you overreacting to what I've just said? But they're Mm. not reacting to what you've said. They're reacting to, as you suggested, Genevieve, how they're feeling, what they're thinking at the moment. Or maybe someone said that to them when they were small and, you know, it's triggered some sort of, uh, you know, emotion that they weren't expecting. They're not actually reacting to you. They're reacting to something
0: else. The one I always found hilarious, when you were at school, did you find teachers would occasionally write on your work, see me? (laughs) It's terrifying. It would be terrifying. (laughs) Even in the adult workforce, whenever a manager would say to me, Genevieve, could you see me later? Or could you Mm -hmm. step aside into this office room because I need to talk to you about something? I would just totally flash back to when I was in primary school and a teacher would write, see me on my work. And I would just go into this blind panic. And I think 99.9% of the times, it was just something really dumb that I didn't, didn't need to panic about. But your brain went back to, oh, I'm in trouble from the teacher because yes, of, exactly. the teachers would do when you're at school. When I was managing a team, I used to actually say to people whenever I was taking them aside, you are not in trouble, but can I go and speak to you in this room because I want to talk to you and I don't want to disrupt everyone else. Yes, yes.
1: And and that's a really important technique. You know, if you're trying to get some of someone's time, even whether you're doing that with your direct report or even if you're managing upwards or talking to someone outside your team, it's always helpful to give a little bit of context because saying, can we have a quick chat? Or can you come and see me? Or people often will go to the worst. They'll assume that you telling them off or you or they're they're going to get sacked or something terrible is going to happen because so many of us have had those experiences at school like you have um, and like I have where the teacher has just given you something very oblique (laughs) and not very clear
0: and looking back on it what are the teachers thinking when they did that (laughs) let's hope teachers don't still do that (laughs) I hope not (laughs) with the students who take your course I'm guessing that they're predominantly actuaries. Is Mm. that correct? Mm, That's right. Have you had any actuaries who are also data scientists taking the course?
1: Yes. In fact, there's more actuaries that I'm meeting in a younger wave of actuaries coming through. Many of them consider themselves as data scientists as well as actuaries. And I guess there's that sort of age-old debate of how, how do you define them? Because I, I think there's overlap. And I think not all actuaries are data scientists, but not all act, not all data scientists are actuaries.
0: With the data scientists who you've taught through your course, do you find that they have special needs for with regard to communication that you might not have or that might not exist in a less technical person? I, I think actuaries
1: and data scientists face similar challenges in this regard. And I think some of the some of the key challenges are, so one of the ones I've described before is that we tend to want to share our results by taking people on the journey of the work that we've done. And usually our stakeholders and people who are digesting our results, they don't want to come on the journey or they don't understand the journey or they don't need to know the journey. So I think that's one of the challenges that we we share is we do the work, but then when we're presenting the results or communicating challenges about it, we're framing it in the sense in the, or in the context of the work that we're doing rather than what the audience needs to know. So I think making that transition from this here's the technical work I'm doing to how do I then explain it to somebody else or how do I explain a concept or a problem that's come up to someone else, that's a challenge that I think is common across um actuaries and data scientists and probably other analytical pre- professionals, technical professionals.
0: Data scientists and technical professionals have a bad reputation for being introverts. Is that something you've also had to deal with? That's a really good question.
1: Uh, and the introvert extrovert one. Um, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I don't know if you've done Myers-Briggs. Have you done the Myers-Briggs yes. test
0: before? And, and where sure. on that spectrum of introversion or extroversion would you sit? I'm actually on the borderline between introvert and extrovert. So depending on what day of the week I test, sometimes I'm I and sometimes I'm E. More recently, I've been in the E side, but it's usually, if you look at the percentages, it's usually something like 52%. So it's just over. You're on the border. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's really interesting, Genevieve, because I also am on the border. So I find that if I took the... The test while I was at work and in work mode, I'd come across as an E, and if I did the test at home, I'd maybe be more on the I side. So I'm often on that cusp too, and I I think that's a great place to be because it means we can be kind of a bit more adaptable. Maybe maybe we can see both sides, but I also think you know introversion and extroversion. It's it's also not are you outgoing or are you quiet? Because by that definition, I'd say well I'm probably quiet by nature, and I've sort of learnt to be a bit louder when I'm doing some of my work activities because I need to communicate things. It's really about where do you get your energy? So do you, do you, are you energized by spending time working with others or working in a team and talking to people and socializing with people or are you energized by having time on your own? I think by that definition, I also feel like I'm on the border because if I was at my desk behind a spreadsheet day in day out, I would get really bored and lonely and probably start getting distracted Whereas if I'm on an, you know days and days of just meetings back to back, I find that quite exhausting too. So it's it, it, always an interesting question: the introversion, extroversion, and and the differences in our styles, and what we need to be effective at work, how we communicate, what our natural styles are, but also what we need to
0: re-energize and recharge. Have you read Personality Isn't Permanent by Benjamin Hardy? I haven't. No. Tell me about it. His argument is people change over time. The person you are today is not the same as the person you were five years ago, which Mm -hmm. I think most of us would agree with, but you can consciously direct how you will change in the future. Rather than just passively allowing yourself to change as time goes on, which is what most people do, you can set a goal that, for example, I am going to become more extroverted and effectively direct the changes in your personality as such? That's a
1: really interesting take. So so that it's flexible and we can we can steer how we
0: behave or how we come across. Yeah. And I think it's very consistent with the growth mindset as opposed to the fixed mindset. Absolutely. And it, it is interesting to see
1: how we evolve over time and what's possible because you know, like I said, right at the start, I I thought there were two types of people. There were sort of numbers people and there were words people. And, you know, when I was at school, one of the things I wanted to do career-wise was to become a psychologist. And what put me off was I was terrible at writing essays. No matter what I did, I, I felt like I could never get a good score on an essay. Um, I tried different things. I read books on the topic. I talked to my teachers. I just could never get more than 12 out of 20 in an essay. And I just wore that as an identity. I thought, okay, I'm not, I'm not good at writing. I'm not good at writing. I'm good at numbers because my maths tests, it was always more than 12 out of 20 when they came back. So I, I, I thought that's who I am. Um, but then fast forward, you know, 20 odd years and here I am, I spend most of my days writing. I'm writing emails. I'm writing articles. I've had articles published in Australian magazines and international magazines. I write reports for my consulting work. I write all the time. And the only difference is that now I've realized there's a formula behind writing. There's building blocks behind writing. And I've tried to sort of shake off that identity that I used to wear, which is I'm not a writer. I can't write. And, and I do think we can change and we can evolve over time. I think sometimes it just requires a shift in mindset, but also sorry, not just, but it does require a shift in mindset, but it also
0: requires skills and support to be able to make that transition. When I was at school, my parents, every time they went to the parent teacher night, they got told, she's very quiet. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I did not raise my hand in class at all. I think there were some teachers who didn't even know who I was. Really? You were quiet in class? I never said anything. Hmm. The only time I said something was, I remember in year 12, we were doing Huckleberry Finn and I was the only person in the class who'd actually read the book, I think. (laughs) And I felt sorry for the teacher because the poor teacher was asking questions. It was along the lines of, so what do you think about this? And everyone else in the class was just saying nothing. And I'm thinking, I should probably say something so that this poor woman can actually run the class. Mm you felt sorry for the teacher (laughs) but then I got I started working as a university tutor when I was in third year of university Mm -hmm. and I got offered that job because I was doing very well in the particular course and I remember walking into my first tutorial and I'd been really quiet up until then I didn't say anything at university either and I remember thinking if I keep behaving like this I can't be a tutor and I remember walking into my first class and taking a deep breath and thinking, okay, changing now. Wow. It worked because it did. I needed to in order to survive. Yeah. And I think
1: we we often do need those prompts or some sort of trigger to invite that change to happen. We we need that you know, as you said, it was a survival technique. And Mm -hmm. and in our careers, sometimes it's a survival technique to build some new skills Mm -hmm. to be able to continue to progress, whether it's progressing into a management stream or whether it's just progressing into a more senior technical role. We often need to supplement our technical skills with some extra communication skills. Um, And I love your example of just deciding that you were going to all of a sudden communicate differently, that you needed to show up differently, you needed to act differently. And yeah, what an exciting example. And what a powerful example that you were able to do that. How did it feel after you made that decision and and that transition to show up differently?
0: It was weird because it was just like a switch flicking. And I was still not answering questions in class after that, but I could at least control it so that I could do it in the tutorials, which is where I needed to turn it on.
1: So when you were in front of the class, you could turn on that switch and communicate differently from how you might be communicating when you were the student in the tutorial.
0: Yeah. Then I could go and sit back in the middle of the classroom and get lost again.
1: <laughs> and did that get easier with time when you were doing more and more of that? Or Oh, Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, it got to the point I lectured throughout my PhD and I was lecturing three or four hours a week during that time. By the time I finished my PhD, I could have probably rolled out of bed, crawled to the classroom, stood up, looked at my notes and gone, okay, let's begin this class.
1: So with practice, you it got not only more comfortable, but you you were more Natural doing that. You didn't have to work as hard to do that or to switch on that switch, kind of happened more naturally. And you were able to just show up and do it.
0: It's a no brainer now.
1: Well, now you're a podcast host,
0: Genevieve. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we're celebrities, Julia. <laughs> <laughs> Who'd have thought? Here we are. <laughs> Quiet girls from class. <laughs> do you prepare before you have important conversations? Yes. And I probably
1: have a tendency to over prepare you know, even thinking back earlier this week when I was thinking about this conversation, Genevieve, Mm -hmm. and I reached out to you with some clarifying questions and you were able to reassure me. It was interesting in my earlier parts of my career when I was still learning how to speak up in meetings, how to present results, how to present to audiences, because I'd often look up at the senior leaders in my team and they just seemed to be very natural in making those presentations. They didn't seem to do any preparation Mm -hmm. They'd often joke about just winging it. (laughs) And whilst probably these days I don't need as much preparation time to feel comfortable for a presentation or an important conversation, I think it's always respectful and it's always worth the time investment to spend some time thinking about your audience. You said preparing for an important conversation. So who's who's the conversation with? What's the objective of the conversation What's the outcome that you're seeking to achieve from that conversation? Is it because you need to inform them about about something? Is it because you need them to do something? Is it because you need to negotiate something? Is it, you know, what's the purpose of the conversation? But also what's their style? Are they busy and they're quite direct and you'll need to really get to the point very quickly? Do they like to have a bit of a casual chat, a bit of chit chat? beforehand to sort of warm up and be open to whatever it is that you need from them. So there's so many different aspects of having conversations and the things that you need to do to prepare for those conversations. And it's not just about the content. Messaging and content is also always important, but I think just thinking through what's the purpose of the conversation. Um, Should it be a conversation? Should someone else be at the conversation? Should you prepare some visuals? Should you prepare some notes before that conversation? Should you share those notes with someone before that conversation? There's so much that goes into preparing, I think, for a successful, important conversation that goes beyond just preparing the content.
0: One mistake I think a lot of people make is when you're preparing for a conversation, you prepare assuming that that conversation will lead to whatever the outcome you want is. So it might be if you're pitching a particular data science model, that that model will be approved by powers that be, or if you're talking to your boss about getting a raise or a promotion that your boss will say, yes, I understand your point of view here, have another bucket of money. But realistically, a lot of the time you don't get what you want. True. How do you prepare for the worst case scenario? (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, that's a good question, Genevieve, <clears throat> um, because you're right. We don't always get the outcome that we're hoping for out of a conversation. I like to think that if if you're well prepared, you're more likely to get what you want out of the conversation. But sometimes I think that can be a problem when we do over prepare for a conversation that we we think that the more preparation we do, the more likely we are to get what we want. And there's not always a direct correlation between those two things. So how do you prepare for the worst? Well, it's a tough one, especially if the stakes are high and it's something that you really need. It can be very challenging.
0: And how do you cope with the conversation when just say you're asking for a raise and you've just laid out why you should get this raise. You've said, Mm -hmm. I did all this brilliant work. I brought in a truckload of money for the company and your boss says, "Mm, that's great, but we can't afford the raise and you still want to argue your point. I find that's the point where I often get lost for words. Are there any techniques that you could recommend for people, so that they don't embarrass themselves. Because I know some of the reactions that people would have in those situations are burst into tears, start screaming at the boss, which is definitely mm. not the right <laughs> solution. <not> <laughs> become really silent. Some of the things that I've done when I've become lost for words is say, "Thank you for telling me that." I will leave now. Yes, bring the conversation yes. to an end as quickly as possible. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: I think that's that's often the best option. I mean, I think everyone's different in terms of how well they can contain that reaction to whatever it is that they've asked for and, and if that request's being denied. Like we talked about earlier, sometimes that denial can trigger other things as well, so our reaction might not be to what our boss is saying to us, it might be to something else and I think it's helpful if you can try and tap into that and be mindful of that. But in terms of techniques, especially if you are having a big emotional reaction to what's being said in a, in a meeting, and it does happen. It happens to all of us. It's happened to me many times because we are human and we have Ooh. feelings. Um, sometimes it can happen unexpectedly. But yes, I think sometimes just taking a pause in the same way that you've just described, calling time on the conversation, you know. Thanks for your time. I'm going to need some time to think about this. I'll come back to you when I've thought on it some more. So really just doing whatever you can do to contain the conversation. Thank them for listening to what you've asked for. But once you notice that feeling of, oh, wow, I'm having a real reaction to this, a real response, a physical response or an emotional response to this, to just end that conversation, but to to give yourself some time to process it, to talk it over with someone else, I'm the kind of person who doesn't think well on their feet. So I quite often, something will happen or something unexpected happens. And, you know, it's not until I'm at home later that night or the next day, I think, oh, I wish I'd said that, you know? Yes. (laughs) My, I've got. I'm the eldest of four, and I've got brothers. And you know, some of them could just sell ice to Eskimos. Like they can just talk. They can talk off the cuff. They're probably those guys that can just wing it um, and wing those conversations. I'm not like that, and not everyone is like that. And so sometimes buying yourself some time when that those things happen, just so that you can process, regroup, get back into your rational brain, and and actually think through what you want to do next. You're not always going to get what you want, but I think being able to have a process in place to contain that reaction and give yourself some time to work through it and work out what you want to do next. Good to just create that space for yourself to do it rather than trying to have the conversation or keep arguing or keep trying to make your case because it's, it's really going to be effective and it, it might be damaging to that relationship as well.
0: One other thing I want to touch on before we wrap this up is the topic of meetings. I'm not talking about one-on-one meetings here. I'm talking about those really big meetings that you encounter in the workforce. Yes. What are your thoughts on
1: meetings? (laughs) It's a a really interesting question, Genevieve, because I think meetings are part and parcel of today's business world. And and increasingly, they're often a a Zoom call or a Teams call. Um, Mm -hmm. I think they're generally necessary. But I think it's important to remember two things. One is what's the purpose of that meeting and having those people at that meeting? So the hidden cost of meetings, um, it's frustrating for individuals, but if you've got a a large group in a room and your organisation is paying everyone's salaries or consultants fees for everyone to be there, what's the value out of having everybody in that same place? Because sometimes there's this false economy that it's more efficient to just get everyone together. I think it's a false economy on two fronts one is you've often got people who aren't contributing they're multitasking or they're not relevant to that discussion and so that's a complete waste of their time or it's a false economy because people aren't always and i think this tends to happen as the groups get bigger people aren't always completely transparent or can't feel that they can don't feel that they can always be completely transparent or tell you exactly what they think about certain things in a meeting now, sometimes they do and the meeting gets quite messy. <laughs> but, you know, a recent example I can think of was um, I was engaged by a client to help them with a certain problem. I asked for a, an initial meeting with the key decision makers around the project to help steer the direction of it. And we had that meeting. And I thought it was really productive. I thought it was really fruitful But then things kind of stalled and there was this sort of email trail afterwards of one person says, oh, but what about this? But it was something we'd agreed to in the meeting. The other person says, oh, what about this? And I'm thinking, why is this kind of going the way it's going? And the short answer is it was because I thought it was more efficient to meet with everybody together, but really people had different views, but they weren't prepared to air them in the group. Sometimes it feels less efficient, but it's actually more productive and more effective. If you can have targeted one-on-one catch-ups with people to understand people's thoughts on things or their perspectives on things when you're in that decision-making process and that brainstorming process, and then get everyone together to validate or endorse once everyone's shared their views and you know what those
0: views are, um, a way forward. That actually sounds very consistent with Elon Musk's rules for productivity. Did you see that email that leaked on the internet? I'm not familiar with the, with the exact one, but maybe you can refresh my memory. Apparently, Elon Musk sent an email to Twitter staff giving all these rules for productivity that he wanted after he became CEO of Twitter. And they're all things like get rid of all large meetings unless they add value, get rid of frequent regular meetings, walk out of meetings if it's obvious you aren't adding any value. Clearly that man hates meetings.
1: (laughs) It's it's difficult, isn't it? Because I think, you know, that's one extreme view. I I think there is a lot of benefit to be had by getting people together. And that's not always, it's not always the most efficient way to reach a solution. It's not, certainly shouldn't be the, bulk of your time but there's also an aspect especially in this kind of post-pandemic world of it can be just nice for people to actually get together and build rapport so it comes back to what's the purpose of the meeting is this a team building exercise is this a getting to know you exercise are we trying to make some decisions here And so I think understanding goes back to preparing for an important conversation, thinking about what the right format for that conversation is. Is it a one-on-one conversation? Is it several one-on-one conversations? Is it a small group discussion? Is it a large group discussion? Is it a paper for consideration that people can take away and think about and then come back with views? So, or is it just team building? Is it rapport building and relationship building? And that's, that's okay as a purpose too. I think it's just a matter of making sure everyone's clear about what that purpose is and whether you've got the right forum and format for that purpose to achieve that aim. What's
0: one technique you could use to make meetings more effective?
1: So I always like to have a clear agenda for a meeting. I like to be, make sure everyone's on the same page with what the objective is. And if I'm facilitating or chairing the meeting, I will always start by saying, by the end of this meeting, we need to have achieved X. And achieving X might be, I will have given you an update with where the project's up to, or it might be, we have some questions and we need to have Answers from people in the meeting. And the way I want to achieve that aim is by talking about X, Y, and Z. Is there anything else that we need to cover as part of this meeting to achieve that aim and to give that option? So It doesn't have to be a detailed written agenda. It can even just be done at the start of a meeting verbally. But just making sure at the start, everyone's really clear about what the purpose is of that meeting and how we're going to achieve that purpose and giving people the opportunity to to float things or add things to the agenda and prioritise so that you can get through what you need to in the time you've got assigned.
0: And what if you're a lower status member of that meeting? So not the person who's chairing it, for example.
1: Well, that's why I always like to give some space at the start of the meeting to say, here's what I'm planning on doing. Does anyone have anything that they need to add to that? And I mean, I guess pecking order can be a, a strange thing in organisations too. So sometimes junior people don't feel as confident to speak up. It's a tricky one. <laughs> you, you can, you can. There are techniques that you can use to, to try and elicit that kind of engagement. But you're asking if you are the junior person and you feel like the meeting's going off track. Yes. Mm. It's a hard one, isn't it? Because you can either sit there and do nothing and go, well, I've been asked to come and, you know, it's not my choice. Sometimes that has knock on effects to you and your workload, though. So, you know, sometimes you can be saying, especially if someone's set up front, what the objective is, if it starts to go off track, you could always ask a question. You know, is this helping to achieve our goals? And I guess that's another reason why having a clear objective, whether it's documented or not, but at least agreed at the outset so everyone knows what we're aiming for, probably does give everyone in the meeting an opportunity to ask the question if they feel confident to do so and if, they've, if the facilitator's created a safe enough space to do so. Are we, still, are we getting off track? I'm just wondering, uh, the objective of this meeting
0: was to do X, Y and Z, but we're talking
1: about, you know, B, C and D.
0: One thing I've found when I've been a lower status person is I find if there's something I want to achieve in that meeting, if I make sure I'm the best prepared person in that room, people will often agree with whatever I'm proposing because if they're not prepared and you present a solution, usually their agenda is to come up with a solution in that meeting. So you've got a very high probability that your solution will be chosen. That's a, that's a great approach, Genevieve.
1: So going in with a clearly defined solution that you've well thought through Mm. and presenting that even as a, a more junior member of the team.
0: Yes. So I've gotten a lot through that way just because no one else was prepared. What a great strategy. Is there anything on your radar in the AI data and analytics space that you think is going to become important in the next three to five years? I think what we're going to see in the next
1: few years is just a continuing wave of increasing sophistication around data analysis and AI. And I think, you know, we've seen that recently with ChatGPT, you know, we, we now everyone has access, open free access to, to AI to ask everything they want and students can use it to maybe cheat on their exams or, you know, lots of concerns there. <laughs> um, but what I think is that it will become increasingly a part of everybody's life it's important for us as as data scientists, um, as technical people, who probably at least have some sort of appreciation about what what AI is or what data analysis can do and the tools that are available. Uh, Everyone's on a different sort of part of that spectrum in terms of understanding and even acceptance of those more sophisticated technologies. And what I mean by that is, when i was at school and i got my first late high school and i got my first mobile phone all you could do was call people on it. it smsing you know there was no texting back then there certainly was no facebook there was no internet i mean why would you want a camera on your phone just didn't you know it was just wasn't something we we thought of it was just for for calling people and my kids who are young adults now they they say to me that's crazy we never use we never call people on our phones <laughs> i mean <laughs> and so i think as as data analysis and AI becomes increasingly sophisticated and increasingly part of mainstream life and our mainstream society and culture, some people are going to struggle with the shifts and the way that we're using it. And so I think it's really important to remember that everybody else that we're interacting with has a different view of what it is. They might make some assumptions about what it can do, what it can't do, or some fear around it even. So just realising that everybody has a different perspective
0: on, on what it is. And what final advice would you give to data scientists looking to create business value from data? Learn how to communicate and practice those
1: skills at work and at home. I think that what's going to separate good data scientists from great data scientists is the ability to understand the context around a business problem and to be able to communicate the results of their analysis, but also work with stakeholders with different backgrounds to really define the problem and to really come up with an efficient and effective solution that can be easily explained, that's robust, um, and that can be
0: implemented and and ultimately make a difference in the world. And with ChatGPT out now, you basically have to be able to communicate better than ChatGPT can. Right, right, exactly. (laughs) For listeners who want to learn more about you or get in contact, what can they do? I'm on LinkedIn,
1: so feel free to reach out and connect with me on LinkedIn. If you're looking for help around some of these things as well, I'm sure you'll put some links in the show notes to some of our courses and our website, Um, but always happy to have a chat.
0: Thanks very much for joining me here today, Julia. Thank you so much for having me, Genevieve. It's been a really fun conversation. Oh, it's been great. And for those in the audience, thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and this has been Value Driven Data Science brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting.